time keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic Drive Time. Now here's your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McClain. So good to be on with you. Praise be to God. It is Holy Thursday, April the 14th, 2022, and today it comes to an end. Lent, that is. Lent is coming to an end today. Triduum begins, praise be to God. It's going to be a great Triduum this year. Looking forward to Easter Sunday for sure. Uh, But we're going to have a great hour for you this hour. No second hour for those that can join us. It won't won't be a second hour on the radio. We might do an after show on the live uh, social streams, the video streams which you can find linked up on our website at grnonline.com forward slash CDT. But Dr. Carrie Gress rejoins the program today. She has uh, several books published by Tan Publishing. Theology of the Home too. The Spiritual Art of Homemaking, is one of her most latest books out by Tan. But we're going to talk to her not only about the theology of the home, but, you know, how do we celebrate Triduum in particular Get her insights on that coming up at 35 past the hour. Hey, the Kentucky lawmakers, they have overridden their governor's veto of a bill banning transgender athletes, praise be to God, and abortion ban, by the way. So God is good there. Russia seems to be warning of a Baltic nuclear deployment if NATO admits Sweden and Finland playing hardball. California man says, this is for you, Rudy, a California man driving a Tesla down the highway at 83 miles an hour <laughs> it, it, it system rebooted. That's pretty slow. It system rebooted on him. He, huh. he got the spinning wheel of death in his Tesla, and he was stuck at 83 miles an hour, and nothing would work. And that's why I'll never buy a car predominantly electronic. I can't <laughs> yeah. stand electronics. The, oh, by the grace of God, the only thing that worked, nothing else would work. He was pressing buttons, nothing, <laughs> except the brakes. Praise oh. be to God. He was able to well, brake <laughs> and get off the highway. And Tesla, they basically said it had something to do with the fault between the battery charger something or other. Of course. So yeah. the system protected itself by shutting down while driving Great. at 83 miles an hour. <laughs> Have fun with that, Tesla. Yeah, save money on gas and buy a car that uh, is predominantly electronic that you might not be able to stop. <laughs> yeah, at $100,000. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. And fill it full uh, oh, of well, coal in the long term. electricity. Long term, you save money, Joe. Do you? Yeah, of course. Long, long, like it's how elect- long? It's electric, you know. Like Twenty years, thirty, uh, forty yeah. years. Like at what point Actually, do I you feel know like what? I earned it back? I don't want to get into car talk, but you know, <laughs> you could buy them used. I think they they don't hold their value very well. So <laughs> no, so, you don't uh, say. You might you might get something cheap there. You know what does? Adrian Fonseca. That's on the ones true. and twos. That's Here I thought you were about to say. Yeah, speaking of exactly. who doesn't hold value. Yeah, you but saw that, that was coming. good. That was good. I, Adrian's I the happily standard. surprised there, right there. You know, I heard that the uh, Teslas are actually going to go down to, they're predicting they can, uh, average Tesla will be $15,000 in seven years. What? <laughs> and yeah, because of uh, the, the ramp battery, production. The battery, if you have but to replace it, costs how much again? It'll be way less. It'll be way less. But right now, it's absurdly expensive. But you know what? Praise be to God, because you know what today is? What's today? Today is Monday, Thursday. Yes. 
Monday. Oh, wait. Monday. Monday, Mon- Thursday. Monday. Not Monday. Monday, Monday Thursday. Thursday. It's a different song. Yeah. Monday, Monday. Another name for uh, Holy Thursday <laughs> is uh, Monday, Thursday. I actually don't know why. I was trying to find we'll out we'll why. It it's and ye I couldn't English. find out. Is yeah, I, mean, I guess that's what it is. Because there's no like translation there. I was <laughs> like, I don't know what this means, but there you go. It's just another name for today. Just another name. Hey, in addition to Carrie Gress from Tan, I'm also going to read you an excerpt from a, a book published by Tan on the sufferings of Christ, according to the Shroud of Turin, written by Monsignor Vittorio Guerrera. That's mm. coming up at 15 past the hour. Some fa- There's one particular detail in that little article that I want to especially get to because I find it utterly fascinating, but that'll be coming up at 15 past the hour. Hey, Tam, Tam, thank you. Thank you for taking the very last day on the Lenten calendar for our prayer, fasting, and penance campaign. Tam, you are amazing. We appreciate you uh, finishing us off in a, in a bold and beautiful way, praying for our intentions this Lent for the conversion of those that would preach heresy, i.e., thank the German bishops, and uh, blasphemies and you know, taking the Lord's name in vain and peace in our world, those ardent sinners that we tend not to pray for. Tam, you're praying for them today, and we're so grateful to you. Let's begin by praying our golden arrow prayer one last time for this Lent of 2022. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. May the most holy, most sacred, most adorable, most incomprehensible and unutterable name of God be always praised, blessed, loved, adored, and glorified in heaven, on earth, and under the earth by all the creatures of God and by the sacred heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the most holy sacrament of the altar, Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And now your breaking news with Rudy Carlos. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to Catholic Drive Time. Today is Thursday, April 14th, and these are your headlines. Justin News reports suspect in New York subway shooting in custody. Ten people were shot and 19 others were injured in the morning rush hour attack. Ultimately, James's gun, a 9mm Glock, jammed in the middle of his rampage, preventing further bloodshed. The police reportedly received a Crime Stoppers tip from Frank James himself. Police eventually caught James a few blocks over and arrested him. The Daily Wire reports GOP Governor Greg Abbott and Mexican government strike agreement to secure part of Texas-Mexico border. Governor Samuel Garcia signed a memorandum of understanding between the state of Texas and the free and sovereign state of Nuevo León to enhance border security measures that will prevent illegal immigration from Mexico to Texas said a press release from Abbott's office. The agreement goes into effect immediately. The Washington Examiner reports Biden to extend federal transportation mask mandate. The Biden administration will extend the federal masking mandate for uh, public transportation by at least two more weeks, while the CDC monitors the increase in cases attributed to the Omicron subvariant subvariant BA.2. I haven't heard that one. Breitbart reports first migrant bus from Texas arrives near U.S. Capitol in D.C. A bus filled with migrants arrived in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday uh, and unloaded blocks from the Capitol. The bus traveled from Texas under recent orders from Governor Greg Abbott. As the federal government continues to turn a blind eye to the border crisis, the state of Texas will remain steadfast in our efforts to fill the gaps and keep Texans safe, Governor Abbott said in a written statement. By using migrants, by busing migrants, rather, to Washington, D.C., the Biden administration will be able to, to more immediately meet the needs of the people they are, fall, they are allowing to cross our border. 
Texas should not have to bear the burden of the Biden administration's failure to secure our border, said Abbott. And those are your headline news this morning. God love you. The saint of the day. Let me see if you can guess why I chose this saint. There are two reasons that you may find. The saint of the day is Blessed Peter Gonzalez, born in 1190. St. Paul had a conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Many years later, the same proved true for Peter Gonzalez, who triumphantly rode his horse into the Spanish city of Astroga in the 13th century to take up an important post at the cathedral. The animal stumbled and fell, leaving Peter in the mud and onlookers amused. Humbled, Peter evaluated his vocation and his bishop uncle, who had secured for him a cathedral post as a canon. He started down a new path. He became a Dominican priest and proved to be a most effective preacher. He spent much of his time as court chaplain and attempted to exert positive influence on the behavior of members of the court. After King Ferdinand III and his troops defeated the Moors at Cordoba, Peter was successful in retraining and restraining rather the soldiers from pillaging and persuaded the king to treat the defeated Moors with compassion. After retiring from the court, Peter devoted the remainder of his life to preaching in northwest Spain. Having developed a special mission to Spanish and Portuguese seamen, he is considered their patron. Peter Gonzalez died on April 15, 1246, and was beatified in 1741. Blessed Peter Gonzalez, pray for us. Praise be to God in all things. The gospel today comes to us from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wish to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over, and you are clean but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, You are not all clean. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do 
as I have done to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said, The evangelist, being about to relate so great an instance of our Lord's humility, reminds us first of his lofty nature, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, not excepting the traitor. Close quote, St. Augustine. St. Chrysostom would say, See what humility he shows, not only in washing their feet, but in other things. For it was not before, but after they had sat down, that he rose. He not only washed them, but laid aside his garments and girded himself with a towel and filled the basin. He did not order others to do this, but did it himself, teaching us that we should be willing and ready to do such things. Close quote. St. Chrysostom. What about Origen? Origen says, quote, For our Lord insinuates that this is a mystery. By washing and wiping, he made beautiful the feet of those who were to preach glad tidings and to walk on that way of, on which he tells them, I am the way. Jesus laid aside his garments that he might make their clean feet still cleaner, or that he might receive the uncleanness of their feet unto his own body by the towel with which alone he was girded, for he hath borne our griefs, close quote, origin. And it's true. There's great humility here. There's great symbology here. There's even references to, the, to their uh, sacramental baptism. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Praise be to God. But I love, as we talked about yesterday with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, the typology here and the, and the symbolism of priestly ordination. And Ignatius Catholic Commentary did a good job of this today, saying the foot washing may be a sign of priestly ordination, as in the Old Testament, Exodus 40. Against this background, Jesus washing Peter and the disciples parallels the scene of Moses washing Aaron and his sons on the day of their consecration to the priesthood in Leviticus 8, verse 6. Likewise, the apostles receiving a part, a meros in the Greek, in Jesus's uh, in Jesus recalls how the Levites had their portion, their meris, in the Greek, in the Lord God alone in Numbers 18. In fact, it says this in number in Deuteronomy 18, rather, Deuteronomy 18, 20. Uh, and the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Now, what's fascinating here to me is all of the symbols, all of the hints, all of the typology coming to this perfection in priestly ordination. The washing of the feet, as Peter recognizes, makes him do something that he never imagined before. A priest like Aaron, a high priest at that. It's fascinating, and it goes infinitely more deeper than this when you start to compare the Synoptic Gospels, Gospels to John in the upper room. We'll leave it there. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into the wounds of Christ on the cross. Don't go anywhere. Catholic Drive Time. We'll be right back. There's a lot of depth and interesting details in the story of the woman at the well. Jesus asks a Samaritan woman for a drink, while his disciples are off to buy food. And this request leads to a fascinating conversation. Jesus reveals to her that he has living water that will cause those who drink it to never thirst again. He also reveals that he knows the details of her personal relationships with several husbands and even tells her, a non-Jew, that he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. We are told that the woman leaves her water jar at the well and goes off to tell the people in town about him. 
It's as if she completely abandons her important mission for water. She abandons bodily comforts for more important things. And this echoes the apostles who left behind their fishing nets to go follow Jesus. What are we willing to abandon and leave behind to follow the Lord this Lent? This is Matt Maloney from KnowTheFaith.net. Men, it's time. The Men's March to End Abortion and Rally for Personhood is Saturday, June 11th, the weekend before Father's Day, from 12 to 3 p.m. in Tallahassee, Florida. Men gather at 12 p.m. for the march. All women, children, and families join us for the 2 p.m. rally at the Florida State Capitol. You are needed. Every life matters. Join us on June 11th in Tallahassee. For more information, go to themensmarch.com. Jesus Christ, welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. So good to be on with you, praise be to God. Carrie Gress, author of Theology of the Home 2, as well as one, published by Tan, is going to come up at 35 past the hour to talk about the theology of homemaking, but also how to uh, how to live well the triduum in your home. That's coming up at 35 past the hour. But uh, here's uh, an article out of Tan. I saw this this morning. I thought this was super fascinating. And there's at least one detail in this that just blew my mind. Um, It can be a little heady, but it's about the sufferings of Christ according to the Shroud of Turin, written by Monsignor Vittorio Guerrera. Here's a little excerpt. It goes like this. The case for authenticity. The historical and scientific evidence related thus far provide incontrovertible data for the authenticity of the shroud. In subsequent shroud research, the following pathologists have made significant contributions. Dr. Buckland, who was involved in the STIRP and is also deputy medical examiner for the county of Los Angeles, Dr. Frederick Zugibi. Zugibi? I don't know how to say this correctly. I'm probably going to butcher their names, and I apologize ahead of time. Chief Medical Examiner of Rockland County, New York, and Dr. Joseph uh, Gambetsia, a member of STERP and Chairman of Medicine at St. Agnes Medical Center in Philadelphia. Goes on to say, Dr. Buckland, who has been a forensic pathologist for over 50 years and has performed over 25,000 autopsies, has noted five major categories of wounds that can be identified on the Shroud of Turin. The first group of injuries is located on the back, ranging from the top of the shoulders down to the calf. These injuries consist of double puncture wounds, which appear to go from lateral downward, indicating that an instrument was used in a flicking manner, which tore the skin. In 1978, biblical archaeologist and scholar Dr. Eugenia Netwowski, along with other scientists, discovered a minute muscle fragment on the man's back in the area designated 3BB. There are more than 120 strokes which were caused by a whip having either two or three dumbbell-shaped weights made of metal or bone. Based upon the wound patterns of the man on the shroud, it appears that there were two uh, tormentors. There were two tormentors and that one of these scourges was taller than the other and uh, and took particular interest in lashing the victim's legs. Dr. Zwigby envisions the scene as follows. Quote, Jesus was bent over and tied to a low pillar. When he was flogged across the back, chest, and legs with a multifaceted flagellum with bits of metal on the ends, 
Over and over again, the metal tips dug deep into the flesh, ripping small vessels, nerves, muscles, and skin. His mouth was dry, and his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. Unfortunately, the scourging was initiated by the Romans, so the Deuteronomic limit of 40 lashes less one was not followed. 120 lashes. Let's think about that today. The second group of injuries can be found on the face and head. The forehead and scalp have a series of blood stains caused by sharp points. On the forehead, one median flow and two lateral flows of blood are seen. Interestingly, the median stain is in the form of the number three on the negative photo or the Greek letter epsilon on the positive photo, which, if turned on its side, forms the lowercase Greek letter omega. You might recall the words of Christ, I am the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation twenty-two thirteen. The third group of injuries involves the wrist and forearms. <clears throat> Excuse me. According to Dr. Barbet, a nail was most likely driven between the bones of the space of the desta, the space between the bones of the wrist. When the nail entered this opening, it enlarged it without shattering any bones, but it injured the median nerve, which flexes the thumbs, causing the thumbs to contract. Dr. Barbit pointed out, quote, that is why on the shroud, the two hands when seen from behind only show four fingers and why the two thumbs are hidden in the palms. Close quote. These pioneer findings have been challenged by contemporary researchers like Dr. Zig, Zig Zwigby, who says that the thumb naturally turns itself inward toward the index finger in both the living and the dead. He further states that the four bones which made up the space of the destit, namely, uh, I don't want to name them, it's no pointless, are located on the ulnar, the little finger side of the wrist, not the radical thumb side, which is the side depicted on the shroud. So there's some debate there on that. Going on to say, since the shroud image only depicts the exit of the nail on the back of the hand, it is not certain at which point the nail entered. There's a hot debate, right? Uh, did he, did, was he nailed in the wrist? Or was he nailed in the palms? And if, it, if all the images show in the palms, but it was true in the, in the wrist, it must all be bunk. That's the argument that keeps going down. Well, there's a debate here. If the nail entered the destined space, it would not have severed the median nerve because it is located in this area. To support his hypothesis, Zwigby uh, quotes from a book by Dr. Ernest Lampe, a renowned hand surgeon, who said that even if the median nerve was severed, quote, there is inability to flex the thumb, index, and middle, middle fingers, close quote. Zwigby suggests two possible places where the nail could have, been, could have penetrated the hand, the radical side of the wrist, or at an angle through the thenar furrow located at the base of the thumb. That is, through the upper palm slanted toward the wrist. He holds that the nail could very well have passed through the upper palm, uh, upper part of the palm, pointing toward the wrist, toward the arm, emerging, uh, emerging as shown on the shroud. The upper part of the palm could easily have supported the weight of the body. So... It's possible to have your cake and eat it too in that debate, I suppose. You can have the palm and the wrist all at the same time. Another particular ass, a peculiar aspect of the man of the shroud is that the left forearm looks shorter than the right. When one measures the tip of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger on each arm, the right arm, right forearm is three inches longer than the left. It actually is, and there is no difference. It's an optical illusion because 
the left wrist is bending forward over the right and the fingers are curled. Let's talk about the wounds in the feet. The fourth group of injuries is located around the feet. And this is the point that I thought was super fascinating to me. I had never heard this before, so I was blown away. The imprint of the right foot is well-defined. The left heel is elevated higher than the right, which may have re, uh, retracted during rigor mortis. What is more, this is the cool part. Are you ready? You're holding your breath. What is more, the fingerprints of the person who carried the body of Jesus to the tomb can be seen on the heels of the feet, most notably on that of the left foot. Monsignor Ricci says, quote, the little finger and the ring and middle fingers of the left hand in contact with the heel were surrounded by the blood running down from the hole in the left foot. The same thing happened with the right hand on the right heel, though the imprint is less clear, close quote. Had you ever, have you ever heard of fingerprints on the Shroud of Turin, Rudy? Sorry about that. My mic was off. Uh, no, I haven't heard of that. That's, that's a detail that has slipped by me, but I have heard of all of the amazing discoveries and, and evidence that this shroud belonged or rather was wrapped around our blessed Lord. You know, I've also heard of the, the miraculous way of um, uh, it's almost as if a, a flash of light imprinted uh, the face of Jesus onto yeah. the shroud. Yeah. It's just it's so more incredible. than one place, by the way. Yes. Because they discovered, I think, for, within the last few years, that if you lay the shroud out flat, you see the face of, mm -hmm. the, of the man on the cloth. But if you flip it over, there's a duplicate on the opposite side. That's incredible. You know, what's fascinating to me, on last Saturday when I was at the retreat, the, the TFP guys came and helped us with the retreat and the one thing that stood out to me we were talking amongst ourselves and and one of the guys was made the comment you know it's so amazing how you can have a relic of jesus like uh, having the shroud of turin he was talking <laughs> about how he knew someone who was working with the shroud and and uh, there was a straight piece that fell off the shroud and oh, wow. they he asked him hey can i keep this and he was like oh yeah sure and so he kept it <laughs> he was like and they were and so he had a he had a relic of our lord and then i and then he made the comment he goes but you know what's even crazier than that the fact that we can receive our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist every single day and we overlook it. We're like, whoa, the Shroud of Turin, so cool, wow. But then we realize that the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ is available to us every single day of the week, uh, except for good, uh, except for uh, one right. day a year, yeah. Good Friday. And that's uh, – and we are – and we so are like true, so yeah. desensitized to that that we're like this well, is so cool the cross some where the are. the shroud and all these cool things that are going on and uh, yeah I mean that's all good things yeah. and help I don't us go with to our adoration faith, to the shroud so true. But I do go to adoration to the blessed sacrament so I think some of us for sure fall into that category but just think about but it but I don't think everybody does not not even the angels are are able to receive our blessed Lord the way I, that we I can. still am blown away with the fact that our Lord left us a picture. Yeah. You know, or the, yeah, potentially, cool. I guess you could say. But I believe it's truly him. And, I think so, too. And I think it's fascinating. Now, this article does go on to talk about a debate between whether or not there was one nail used for both feet 
or two nails, one for each foot. And there's arguments for both in this uh, from each of these uh, scientists that are making their arguments in there. And then there's, of the course, the, the wound on the side of Christ. And the interesting part about the wound on the side of Christ in this article, which is an excerpt of the book The Shroud of Turin by A Case for Authenticity by Monsignor Vittorio Guerrera, published by TAN, is that uh, the bloodstains, and I talked about this yesterday in conversating with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, the, bl- the bloodstain, or maybe it wasn't yesterday, at any rate, the bloodstains point to a post-death wound on the side uh, of on the right side of Christ. So, and this article makes that point. It's very fascinating because when you look at things forensically, and it blows my mind, we all remember when the, the television show, well, maybe not all of us, some of us are old enough, remember that when the CSI television show came out, you know, we were all fascinated by the science behind crime investigation. And of course, they exaggerated things in those television shows for sure, but the techniques are there, and they have applied those techniques to things like the Shroud of Turin, and it's utterly fascinating to see them talk about how uh, the bloodstains tell a very specific story, and that was true here in this article about the side of the Christ. Now, one of the doctors, uh, one of these scientists ended here, this last part of the article says, quote, if I were asked in court of law to stake my professional reputation on the validity of the Shroud of Turin, I would answer very positive, very positively and firmly that this, that it's the burial cloth of Christ, and that it is Jesus whose figure appears on the shrine. And that was Dr. Buckland who makes that point. And uh, I don't know, it's very fascinating. There's only so much we could know or understand about this cloth, and we, as I think Adrian just pointed out, we ought to keep things in per- perspective, not not elevate it too high, but it's still utterly fascinating to me uh, to read these details and to think there are fingerprints of the person who was that. Was it John the Apostle? Yeah. Could that be <laughs> John the Apostle's fingerprints? Perhaps. Could you imagine? Or Blessed Mother. Seeing the Apostle. Would, Joseph would, Arimathea. It could be Joseph Arimathea, the guy who donated the, the, the crypt, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm going with John. My money's totally on John the Apostle. <laughs> I mean, how cool would it be? That's in your head cannon. It's totally in my head cannon. <laughs> don't, don't, don't fact check me. If you could fact check me, I'd love to know. Hey, don't go anywhere. Gary Grass is coming up next. Men, it's time. The Men's March to End Abortion and Rally for Personhood is Saturday, June 11th, the weekend before Father's Day, from 12 to 3 p.m. in Tallahassee, Florida. Men gather at 12 p.m. for the march. All women, children, and families join us for the 2 p.m. rally at the Florida State Capitol. You are needed. Every life matters. Join us on June 11th in Tallahassee. For more information, go to themensmarch.com. Think of that person in your life that you have a hard time reconciling with. If he or she doesn't immediately come to your mind, ask your guardian angel to help you discern who that person might be. Pray for that person every day through the rest of Lent, even if you can't stand them. What good is it to fast and obey every discipline of Lent, but still end up after 40 days not reconciled with each other? The Lord's Prayer is an important prayer to revisit on a deeper level during Lent. We pray, give us this day our daily bread as we forgive those who trespass against us. We must rely on God for all things and be reconciled with Him. 
but we must also become reconciled with each other. This is Matt Maloney for KnowTheFaith.net. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. And now, more headlines. LifeSite reports Vatican hopes to renew modified deal with Chinese communists on appointing bishops. The agreement was first signed in 2018 and renewed in 2020. The exact text of the agreement has never been revealed publicly, though it's widely known that it allows the communist Chinese government to propose names for the Holy See's consideration of Episcopal appointments. Within just a few hours of the signing of the agreement, the state in China reiterated its independence from the Holy See. A press release issued by the Patriotic Association of Chinese Catholics and the Council of Bishops of the Church in China, neither of which have been recognized by the Vatican, stated the Chinese Catholic Church will continue to operate independently. Axios reports Elon Musk offers to buy Twitter for $43 billion in cash. Imagine how much cash that is. Elon offered to buy Twitter for $54.20 a share in cash, or about $43 billion, according to documents filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission yesterday. He says, quote, If the deal doesn't work, given that I don't have confidence in the management, nor do I believe that I can drive the necessary change in the public market, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder, unquote. Ground News reports, U.S. military confirms an interstellar meteor collided with Earth. Did you feel it? I didn't. Epic Times reports dollar stores in U.S. and Canada are selling products containing large amounts of toxic chemicals. Researchers also found products in the dollar stores that were made with flexible PVC, which had banned, regulated, or inadequately, inadequately studied plasticizers, consumer electronics with lead solder, flame retardants, and a number of products containing other chemicals of concern, including antimony compounds, organotin, and bromine, which is corrosive to human tissue, according to the CDC. And those are your headline news this morning. God love you. Praise be to God in all things. Thank you, Rudy, for keeping us up to date. Joining us by phone right now is Carrie Gress, uh, and uh, PhD, author of several books, one including uh, an interview we did last year about the anti-Mary exposed. But she's also the author of a, a book called Theology of the Home, one and now two, the spiritual art of homemaking. Good morning to you, Carrie Gress. Good morning, and actually three is coming out pretty soon. Really? As well, in a few months. A yeah. trilogy. Praise be to God. That's that's amazing. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, excited. the spiritual art of homemaking or the theology of the home, I think these are very interesting mm-hmm. topics, but kind of I still see them related to your Auntie Mary Exposed, and that is the world capable of yeah. understanding a theology of the home or even embracing yeah. the concept of homemaking? <laughs> no, I think that's a great question and one of the reasons why we were really motivated to write this book because the the world has embraced a lot of the elements of homemaking, whether it's you know, baking or cooking or, or knitting. All these things are really popular again. But homemaking of course is still really shunned. So we what we wanted to do was just show that you know, what people are rejecting is not in fact something authentic and um, that there really are amazing things about the home. We love the home. You know, people spend billions of dollars on their homes, um, but homes don't make themselves. So um, we were just kind of connecting the dots in a very simple and basic way for people to understand that there's nothing, um, you know, horrible about the idea of being a homemaker. Um, so in any event, that that was really what we were doing with the, the first book. The first book looks a lot at the home itself and what it is that 
that makes it a place that we we want to be in, you know, why we want to decorate our homes, not how to decorate them. Um, and then the second one actually looks at women and, and the challenges of really understanding, you know, what it is a woman, what it is to be a woman. If our, you know, our, our latest Supreme Court justice can't define it, then <laughs> how are we supposed to be able to do that? So um, we go into really a grammar of, of womanhood and what it means to be a woman and how can we, how can we start understanding and reclaiming that after, you know, 50 years of being told that we need to, to become like men in order to be happy. And I think we've seen the evidence that that's, that's not really working. Um, so we need to go back to the gifts that God has, has given us and, and use those um, in, the, in beautiful and compelling ways. And, of course, that doesn't mean that we just stay at home. I, I think, um, you know, both Noel and I work, and um, I obviously have an advanced degree as does she. So, um, you know, I think that there's so many different ways that women are called today. And so how do we um, live out those vac- vocations in a true and beautiful way instead of, you know, trying to fit ourselves into this masculine mold that, um, like I said, has, has clearly shown that it's, it's not making women happy. Do you think that the, the books of Theology of the Home that you're putting out, are they really, uh, I mean, it seems, again, I'll go back to what I said a second ago, and I really feel like this is the case. It's like a, this is a sequel to the anti-Mary Exposed. This yeah. is like, yeah. you know, first mm-hmm. is setting up the problem. This is what's wrong in the world, and here's yeah. the solution. No, and I think that's a great question, because when I looked at the anti-Mary Exposed, when I, you know, I did two years of research on that, and I saw that there was the way that the, this the culture was destroyed was actually through things like magazines and, and daily television, you know, life, um, like Oprah Winfrey kind of shows and, and soap operas and things like that. And um, obviously I don't have the capacity to um, make anything like that, although we are working on a television series now for these books. Um, but it, we we don't really understand as Catholics how it is that women are converted and how we can communicate a message to them. And so that's what we did with these books was, made them beautiful like a magazine but with our images so instead of um, pictures like you would see in magazines that are derogatory towards women we are really showing you know what womanhood can can look like in a healthy and ordered and beautiful way um, so we kind of joke about them being these forbidden pictures of you know showing a man and looking competent and you know pregnant women and lots of children and <laughs> all of that so Anyway, it's it's a really fun project, but it, it really there's a very seriousness there's a lot of seriousness about it because of the fact that we're in a culture war and we have to start fighting back in a way that women are going to absorb content instead of trying to pummel them with content that we in the past have always used that hasn't actually worked. What is what do you think is the number one reason why? I, let me ask this first, and then I'll come back to that. Do if. I sometimes question whether or not the stuff I see in the news is an actual temperature of society itself. Mm-hmm. Am I just being yeah. fed a line? You know, are we just yeah. embellishing the, the the most salacious content possible? Mm-hmm. So I wonder, if, from your perspective, where do you, where do you rate society at when it comes to mm-hmm. embracing homemaking or rejecting homemaking? Mm-hmm. You know, from yeah. a from a, a liberal feminist viewpoint to a traditional mm-hmm. feminist viewpoint, where do you see society actually resting? You know, I think that's a great observation. One of the things that's fascinated me the most digging into all of this is that despite the fact that we are pummeled, women are pummeled all day long with this narrative that we will only be happy if we you know, have these amazing careers and we don't have children and we don't have husbands. 
Um, and yet if you look at the statistics, 42% of women, 42% are still pro-life. Mm. Um, I mean, that's an astounding number to me when you realize, again, this, this fight against us. So um, I think that there is a, you know, it depends on where you live too. Obviously this, you know, I grew up in Oregon and there's a reason I don't live in Oregon because um, <laughs> there's a lot of hostility there. Um, but there's, um, I think there are incredible pockets out there and I think it's very quiet and silent and even the sales of our books have been that way, kind of quiet and silent. Um, but they're, they're bestsellers and continue to sell. And I think people are drawn to it and they feel like they can give it as gifts and, and it's, it's very soft and, and approachable. Um, and so I think that there's this undercurrent that is, that's recognizing that and that is living that. And, and it's, it's very quiet. Um, but I'm also seeing it a lot in millennials who are just haven't bought into it so much. They haven't been indoctrinated for some reason. Maybe they've been raised to kind of question the narrative a little bit more. Um, so I'm seeing some, some wonderful pushback there as well, where they're just saying, no, this doesn't even make sense to me. I don't want to be that kind of woman yeah. that the media is telling me to be. So I, I have a lot of hope that, um, that there are great things going on and, and happening and, and bubbling up. I know, uh, being married now for 22 years, I remember having conversations with my spouse who, when she used to work many, many years ago before we brought her home full time to, uh, you know, focus on our home, uh, her boss, uh, an attorney, just had her first child. And after that beautiful time where mom can bond with the baby, she had to drop the baby off at a daycare and go back to work. And mm-hmm. and my wife reflected on how devastating that was to this woman who was mm-hmm you know, for years focused on making a profession, making a life for herself in the law field and was being successful at it. And then and then that duplicity within her about being torn between work, her career and and her child. Can you speak to that for a moment? Because I bet that's something that most men probably can't even understand. Yeah, no, I think it's incredibly challenging. I think that the bigger picture even is is so tragic. If you look at, you know, I meet women all the time who they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and, you know, the parents have died, they didn't get married, they don't have children, and they sort of just feel, you know, awash in the world. They don't know, they don't really have a role anymore because they're not a daughter, they're not a mother. Um, they may have cousins, but, you know, they don't have family. And um, they're they're angry and, and devastated and feel like, you know, they just feel really incredibly betrayed by the narrative because they followed it to a T, and it didn't lead them where they thought it would lead them, which was just to a deep happiness. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very sad. I think there's there's so many different pressures and um, it, it's just an incredibly difficult thing to um, to deal with daycare and, and all of those challenges. Um, and I know that everybody's story is different. And people have different reasons for doing those things. But it's, you know, women's bodies and hearts are made to carry and hold things, even, you know, our hips and our arms, you know, all of those, all of the body parts point to that you know the form points to the function um and it's it's those things that we've had to really deny about ourselves and so it's it's amazing when you start putting these pieces back together again and seeing like they're meant to work together so it's, it's really beautiful and i think amen hopeful in that respect too hold that thought dr carrie gress is our guest we're talking about her book theology of the home uh two or one and three is about to hit the spiritual art of homemaking between uh, Carrie Gress and Noel Maring. But on the other side of the break, we're going to get into uh, the Triduum. How do we celebrate the Triduum? How do we make the theology of the home special for Triduum? That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. When Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, 
Mary, his sister, kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus was friends with Lazarus and his sisters. When he sees her weeping, he is moved, and the gospel tells us Jesus wept. Those two words are the shortest sentence in the gospels. Jesus wept. We see the human side of Jesus joining in the sadness and loss of his close friends. Lazarus represents each one of us, and we too are called to come out of the tomb of sin and death. The story of Lazarus prefigures the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, but it also points to our baptism. As St. Paul says, We were buried with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. This is Matt Maloney for KnowTheFaith.net. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and infa- inspired. I'm your host, Joe McClain, and we are days away from getting coffee back. Oh, can you smell that? Oh, I can smell That's it right my now. coffee. Yeah, the theology <laughs> of coffee. I should write a book called The Theology of Coffee because uh, I drink do. enough of it. I drink enough of it. Carrie Gress is our guest right now. She's the author, along with Noel Maring, The Theology of the Home, uh, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking, and uh, published by Tan. You can find it linked up at tanbooks.com. Welcome back to the show, Carrie Gress. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. So let's get into the practical side of theology of the home. You know, mm-hmm. um, my wife, I think, has really embraced this over the last uh, several many years, you know, really trying to transform our home into a, a, a little church domestica, you know, and we built mm-hmm. a chapel in our home, and uh, we're, we're constantly improving that when we can and have the funds. We've got, we, we kicked the TV out many years ago, but uh, we do have plenty of statuary and images. We bought Stations of the Cross that we leave up all year long now. Um, we bought some nicer ones. And uh, really transforming the home. But maybe you could talk about that. Like, give us some tips there about how to transform our home into something that's unique and special. Yeah, no, I think that it sounds like your wife is on the path. That's pretty amazing. And and that's one of the, the key pieces of thinking about theology of home, is our homes are really meant to be a foreshadowing of heaven, um, much in the same way that the, the church itself is. There's a lot of things that are shared between the church and the home. Um, if you look at it, things like nourishment, you know, we are nourished in both places. Um, we, we understand mercy and forgiveness in both places, hopefully. Um, light is also both important in both of them. You know, we go to Mass and we have candles. Um, but we also, you know, look for that in our in our own homes in terms of windows and there's a reason why cavernous homes aren't really selling well this, this time of <laughs> um, in history. Um, so I, I think it's those those bigger elements um, are important, but it's also important, like you mentioned, that, you know, statuary and images because they remind us of the things that we love. They they, they offer us you know moments. Um, in fact, I'm looking at a, a, a picture of the face of Christ down in my office at the moment, and you know it's just one of those things you can just look at very quickly and and offer prayer or uh, you know plead for something. Um, so I, I think that they're just important to have around the home, and especially 
for our children who are such sponges and absorbing so much. Um, so it's just an incredible opportunity to, to teach them the faith through these images that are going to be ingrained in their memories because the way that the child child's memory works. Um, so I think that those are important too. I love the idea that you put the chapel in your home. I know um, the other thing that's really popular are just even kind of home altars. And we have one in our home that we've got a crucifix and um, theology of home. We also have candles. So we sell or we use our candles um, each evening. Our children light them. And we've got um, icons and some um, different relics and things like that that, you know, our family just knows it's a special place and we light the candles every night during the rosary, um, our family rosary. So it's little things like that that I think um, add up, you know, I, especially when young moms are getting starting started, it can feel overwhelming. But I think it's something that kind of happens over time where you just you add a thing here, or you add a thing there. Um you, you know, you save up and buy that more expensive piece of art, like probably you did with your Stations of the Cross, um, and, and they just get added on over and over, so, or over time, so rather than feeling like this has to be some sort of huge expense initially, um, it certainly doesn't have to be that. It can be something that happens gradually and organically. Um, so it's it's exciting to see what can happen in the home, because then when you have people who come into your home, you know, they they notice it. There's something, and they notice there's something different about it. You don't need, even have to say, you don't have to evangelize with words in that instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're going to see it the way your family is run and ordered, and they're going to see it in, in, you know, the walls of your home. All of that is going to speak in very powerful ways. Miss um, Grass, do you think that? Uh, by the way, I, I love the books. I, I really do appreciate oh, looking at you. these books. That really well uh, designed. The photography is amazing. Um, oh, I have I have you, a Kelly. question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very good. Um, I used to be a photographer. But um, I'm wondering, you know, a, a lot of the, the aesthetic, the aesthetics are obviously very important. Um, what, what, what would you give as advice for someone who is not aesthetically leaning, like perhaps somebody who doesn't really know how to decorate their home per se? Right. Right. I think that's a great question. And it's something that I'm challenged with, too. I think also, you know, a lot of us don't have budgets for it. Um, mm-hmm. Five children in school, some in school and some not. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of money for me to be spending <laughs> spending on decorating my home. Um, but I think that there's so many opportunities for for ideas from uh, certainly on online and magazines. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have an online blog is is for different kinds of inspiration. Um, but it's there's also something really simple, which is just bringing order to things. Um, and this is one of the things that I've just found makes an incredible difference. You know, I used to be that woman with lots of stacks of things around her home. Um, if you can get rid of the stacks and the piles and the extra stuff, which you know it's really challenging and certainly doesn't happen every day in my home because I because I do have five kids and we homeschool several of them. Um, that makes a huge difference, um, and then you can sort of start seeing space in a different way, just you know, simplifying and, and bringing order to things. Um, I, I think it's very inexpensive, and it just goes a long way in terms of making your home feel like um, it's a place to be renewed instead of a place to sort of stress you out. Um, it's just a, a big, big difference with that. You know, there's often a kind of attitude that we say – Things like, oh, you know, it's okay to be a stay-at-home mom, but the idea of being a stay-at-home wife, uh, meaning before the child comes, before there is a child on the scene, is still very taboo. People don't like the term stay-at-home wife, and they are, even when they're okay with stay-at-home mom. Could you speak about that a little? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, our effort has really just been even talking about that homemaker in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, stay at home. I mean, all of these things just have so many weird um, taboos about them because people have very preconceived notions about, you know, just a woman sitting at home eating bonbons. Um, and actually, I have heard from some woman, she, you know, she said, let me know about um, she happens to have a, a, a daughter-in-law who actually does that, doesn't help out at all. And it's oh, wow. really been challenging for her son. So there's all kinds of different ways and distortions that, that people are, are misunderstanding the point um, of really making a beautiful home and, and how it's really serving others. Um, it's not about luxury, and it's it's about beauty. Um, it's about creating a place where people can really be restored and nourished and then sent out into the world to do what it is that they they need to do if they have to go out into the world. So um, it's, a, it's a balance. So if you lose those pieces of service, then you know, which of course the outside world has lost, you know, it's then very, they're, they're going to misconstrue it. It's very interesting you say that because I was thinking about um, the fact that, you know, we people think they have this idea that, oh, if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you're a homemaker, you're, you're not doing anything, you're sitting around eating bonbons. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because my grandmother who worked uh, her whole life and she just retired, she was telling me the other day, she goes, you know, I really need a retirement from my retirement. Uh, and I, I am put, I am working way more now that I'm home all the time than I ever did at the office. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, the idea that, uh, that moms and wives are just sitting at home doing nothing. It's just absurd to me. And I'm just like, yeah. what do you mean? What do you, just because they're not getting paid monetary money, like just cash right. doesn't mean that they're not working. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's the great myth out there. And it it goes back to, again, this lie that we've been told that really children are an impediment to our life. And it's those things that so many women just miss because they don't understand what happens when you're you're making these relationships stronger with your children and what happens when you're really spending every day. You know, I have a 13-year-old down, I have five kids down to two-year-old. And just the the vast array of things that happen in our home on a daily basis are pretty amazing, you know, from – the child learning a new word to the 13 year old getting an an advanced concept. Like these are amazing things to watch, but done in a context of, of love and trust and, um, you know, just create these incredibly precious moments that I think, you know, stay with me forever. And that, that's the real piece that is very hard to put into sort of any soundbite or sales pitch. Um, that so so many people just don't understand and, and aren't going to get the fruit of until you really are, I think are living it and living it, you know, daily. Ms. Ress, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a, a, a few minutes ago. You know, you mentioned, you know, the home doesn't have to be luxurious. It just has to, it has mm-hmm. to be beautiful. And I think one of the things that gets lost is, um, you know, in, in creating our homes, we, we, should, we should strive for simplicity, you know, simplicity and beauty. And that allows us, or rather it allows the homemaker to be able to take care of their, their duties uh, more effectively. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just in the same way that you normally don't walk into a church and say, wow, this is really luxurious. Mm-hmm. You know, luxury points to something self-serving and beauty points to something that pulls us out of ourselves. Um, so yeah, if that's what I think what we've been really fighting as a culture is a kind of narcissism. Um, so a lot of times, you know, it's very easy to fall into the trap of vanity and want a beautiful home because it's 
it looks good to the neighbors and people will be impressed that you, you made this beautiful home. It's not the point at all. It's really a, 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 the point is to, to bring beauty and to help people see things in a different way, to see God, to be pulled out of themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's I think it's a vital thing to really have it be in an ordered place. If we're, you know, we're consumed with the way that our home looks. And, you know, I will say that there are plenty of times when I have people over and I have to just offer a whole, like, carpeted apology and just say, I apologize for everything that's a mess in my home right now. <laughs> but, uh, and just move on, because otherwise I think you could really be consumed and not feel like you can have people over or your, maybe your home isn't beautiful enough or big mm. enough or, you know, whatever. But the Holy Spirit is going to work through us, you know, no matter what, when we are faithful and, and trusting in Him. And the simplicity just makes it a lot easier. Um, and again, that's the, the beauty of the beautiful is it, it, it happens in simplicity um, in kind of miraculous ways when we, we bring order um, and, and light to our homes. I think it goes just so far that we don't have to get bogged down in, in the details or in things that are really costly and expensive. Well, we are out of time. Uh, there's so much more I wanted to get into, but uh, guess what? You can pick up the book or the books. Go to tanbooks.com. Look for Carrie Grass there. You'll find the Theology of the Home books there. And uh, as you said, uh, I guess you got part three coming out soon. Praise be to God. So get the trilogy. But make sure to get the Auntie Mary book. I think it's very, very good. But uh, Dr. Carrie Grass, God love you. God bless you. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day and happy uh, Triduum to you and happy Easter as well. And that is going to do it for the radio show this week. There'll be no second hour on the radio. We are going to do a live video feed to hanging out with you in the after show for a little bit. Praise be to God. You can always hang out with us on one of our live video feeds. Just go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT to find the live video feeds. Join up to our email list because I send you goodies every week. That's grnonline.com forward slash CDT. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Praise be to God. We are a young and diverse generation, helping those in need and promoting human rights. We care for the environment. We embrace authentic witnesses and dream of a better world. Our passion comes from God, who loves us even when we fall and cheers on our victories. If you sometimes wonder, is there something more? Then come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. This Holy Week, let us slow down and focus on our Lord's passion through the eyes of Mary. Our Blessed Mother knew Jesus from His miraculous birth to His sorrowful death. The prophecy of Simeon predicted that Mary's own soul would be pierced with a sword, and how quickly the crowds turned from welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to condemning Him to death. 
We reflect on the fear Mary must have had hearing the crowds cry out, crucify him. Mary sees her son take up his cross and fall three times as she stands distressed, unable to help him. Our Lady watches as the robe she made for him is ripped from his flesh. Mary was the first one to hear Jesus say, I thirst, and now she hears him cry out these words from the cross. Morning, she receives her dead Jesus from the altar of the cross. She buries in death the son she gave birth to. O Mary, renew your motherhood to us now and at the hour of our death. Men, it's time. The Men's March to End Abortion and Rally for Personhood is Saturday, June 11th, the weekend before Father's Day, from 12 to 3 p.m. in Tallahassee, Florida. Men gather at 12 p.m. for the march. All women, children, and families join us for the 2 p.m. rally at the Florida State Capitol. You are needed. Every life matters. Join us on June 11th in Tallahassee. For more information, go to themensmarch.com. in Birmingham, Evangelization is to tell everybody Jesus loves you. We are all called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. Thank you. Well, this is family night, and many people have asked me in the last couple of months anyway, to make Stations of the Cross. How many people here remember Stations of the Cross? Huh? You, most of you do, don't you? Well, uh, for those who don't know, if you go into a Catholic church, at least most of them, you'll find plaques on the wall. And they're numbered, one, two, three, up to 14. And you usually have seven on one side of the church, and seven on the other. And the purpose of this is to recall the life of Jesus' passion and how he, he died for us. And the purpose of that is to make us understand what sin, that's a dirty word today, isn't it? We don't talk about sin today. So you want to hurt people's feelings. You make them feel guilty. But that's what I want to do tonight, is make you feel guilty. <laughs> But in a good way, not a bad way. There's good guilt, isn't there? 
your conscience tells you, uh-uh, that you shouldn't do that now. So there's good guilt, then you do something and you, it bothers you, so you know the next time you shouldn't do that. So that's good guilt. Then there's that guilt that comes from, from thinking God doesn't forgive and he doesn't forget and you're the biggest sinner in the world and, and all this kind of thing. And that is not good guilt. So these stations of the cross are very powerful. Because when I have a cross, you have a cross that's too heavy to bear. Then if you look at him, your cross suddenly seems smaller. Did anybody ever, could you were carrying a heavy cross and somebody comes up to you and, uh, and tells you all the things they're going through and you, you kind of say, oh God, you know, I thought I had it bad. Did you ever have that experience? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you feel better. You feel, well, gee, you know, everything's happened in that family and, and here I have one little cross and I'm beefing about it. So you feel better, don't you? But that's the whole purpose of the Stations of the Cross. It's not an abstract thing. It's a very, very real thing. I make them every day. I don't feel good if I don't make them, not because I'm scrupulous. I had a superior one time and said I, she wished I had a couple scruples, you know? <laughs> anyway, it's just because I feel like I'm missing something in my own life if I don't make those stations every day. So we have to learn something about his journey so that we know how to live our journey. We all have a way of the cross. Every one of us has a way of the cross. And sometimes we get kind of upset with it and we, get, we say, now Lord, pick on somebody else, you know? And, and we just feel like we've had enough. Do you ever feel that way? Did you ever feel that way? Yeah, you feel, I bet after you broke your arm you felt that way. You just didn't. <laughs> yeah, you just didn't need that. And, but that here's where we need to look at the stations. And what I want to do, if the Lord will give me the grace, or you pray for that grace, is to apply these stations to your everyday life. See, if you just make the stations and you just kind of look at Jesus in the path, Jesus said, who does anything to you the least, to me the least, he would do it to him. Is that right? So your cross is his cross. So we're going to take the first station. Now, if anybody wants to call in between here, please do so. We don't, if we don't finish the stations this week, we'll just finish them next week. You know, we, when you own the station, you're not bound by time, are you? <laughs> no. If you want to just take your time, you just go ahead and take it. That's all. So, this is not going to be a fun night, but maybe, maybe it'll be a joy-filled night for you because if it lifts a burden from you, huh, then it'll be joy-filled. So, we're going to take the first station. Now, when we say station, we're talking about these little plaques. They're little, they're tiny pictures and sometimes very beautifully carved pictures. I've seen stations across that were hand carved that were a work of art. And I think we have three sets up the monastery. We have one outside, some of you may have seen it. And we have one inside and another we're about to put up. So I want to, to, to give you the first station.
If you remember, Jesus went to the garden and he was abducted in the garden. And, and the strange part about that, he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they all fell back. Did you ever see, did you ever wonder about that? They all fell down. And they got up again and, and he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And they fell back again. Do you know why he did that? He wanted them to know that he was going to be in their power through his own power, through his will. He could have just slaughtered them, couldn't he, huh? He could have flattened them out right down through the ground. But he wanted them to know, wanted you to know, that he took upon himself the cross just on, on a will level. He wanted to do it for you. We don't bear crosses for other people very well. Do you think we do? You, you get tired of well, maybe one individual you know that's constantly telling you about their gallbladder and their huh? <laughs> you get tired of that? You cross the street when you see him coming? Hmm? Well, see, Jesus is not tired. He wanted you to know exactly how he felt. He did this for you. And he wanted us to know as we look at the passion what sin is. See, we don't know. We think sin is just, well, we just made a mistake. Most of the time we do. But we don't understand the offense against God, do we? Hmm? If I gave you a sock right in the eye. No? Well, if I did, well, that would be an offense, wouldn't it? That'd be a big offense because it'd be against love and against charity, right? But if I gave uh, the President Bush a sock in the eye, I would be socking the entire nation. So that would be a different story, wouldn't it? See, that'd be a, quite a different story. Be all in the newspapers, you know, Mother Angelica socked the president. <laughs> and it would be a terrible scandal. And, uh, but you see, that's what we have to look at when we look at Jesus uh, before Pilate. We're talking about Pilate, a squirmish little man who couldn't make up his own mind, very weak. We're talking about somebody like that condemning the Son of God. But it's unbelievable, isn't it? That the Son of God would stand there and not say a word and that... You know, and, and Pilate said to him, you know, look, he said, you've got to answer me. He said, I don't find any cause in this man. He said, whose jurisdiction is he in? He says, cave. He said, well, send him over there. Can you imagine now the humiliation of Jesus standing before him? See, they had already scourged him. And, and a Roman scourging had no limit. Uh, Jewish scourging had 39 strokes. They used to say 40 less 1. I couldn't figure out why they just didn't say 39. But they always say 40 less 1. And, and, and he wasn't scourged by Jewish law. He was scourged by Roman law, which is when they got tired, they quit. And you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus permit himself to be scourged? What a very painful thing, huh? 
in reparation for all the immorality in the world. If you're having a if you're having any problems with with morals, I suggest that you think of Jesus being scourged at the pillar and in the agony in the garden. See, in the agony in the garden, Jesus knew all the people who would not benefit by his death. What a terrible thing. You know, there's a consolation, isn't it? Like if you had two of your sons or daughters that needed, each one needed a kidney, and you said, look, I'll give you one, I'll give you each one. Well, you wouldn't mind doing that if they were grateful, would you? But what would happen if they spit you in the face? What, what would you do if, if after you told them you're going to give each one a kidney, which means you yourself would die, and they would just look at you and spit, you, spit at you in the face? Well, you, you'd think that was the worst kind of ingratitude. Well, we do that to Jesus. You see, we look at his passion, and we don't understand he died for our sins. And he saw all the people throughout the centuries that would say no to him. Now, in your own life, haven't you stood condemned sometime before people and you weren't guilty? Huh? Everybody has. Has anybody here done that? Sure you have. Sometimes it's a little thing. See? A friend of yours goes up to you and says, Why are you mad at me? You say, Huh? I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry with you at all. Well, you look like you're angry. Well, maybe you got a toothache or something. See? It's a misunderstanding. You stand then before that person condemned, guilty of something you didn't do. And there's no way to talk them out of it. Did you ever try to talk somebody out of something that somebody who has condemned you for something you're not guilty of? Isn't that a terrible thing? Well, now you begin to understand, you see, what Jesus did. And sometimes you're condemned by your own children. See, you did your very best for them. And, and still, they condemn you. Well, why did you do Some children find fault with their parents because they were so good to them. Now, I never understood that. I was spoiled. You never loved me. You gave me everything, but you never loved me. Never saw love in the things you gave. Isn't that a, a form of condemnation? Don't you feel condemned by your children when as good as you were to them, they go out and go out on drugs? And don't you just stand there feeling as if you did something terribly wrong? But you didn't. They're blaming you for their bad decisions. Isn't that a condemnation? Huh? Now you know what Jesus did, and that's what you got to when you're condemned unjustly. That's why we have these little plaques on our walls. It's just not to run through them. and it's, it's, It has to apply to your life. If you want to really feel what Jesus felt, you've got to apply this to your life. And there's no person in the world, especially peer pressure, Peer pressure for the young teenagers is terrible. And you stand condemned amidst a whole school if you don't go along with them. 
Well, think of Jesus before Pilate, and he was silent. He didn't say anything, except once. Pilate got kind of angry with him. You know, he's a wishy-washy man. And Jesus was helpless. His hands were tied. He, he was uh, very, very, very torn up with scourging, crown of thorns on his head. And the first thing you know, Pilate says he's angry. He says, hey, don't you know I have the power to release you and the power to, to crucify you? And our Lord said a very strange thing, but a very wonderful thing. He said, you have no power over me except it's given you from above. Oh, he got him quiet down in a hurry. You know, that's the most powerful sentence in the world. Jesus said to Pilate, now listen to what he's saying. Jesus said to Pilate, you have no power to crucify me, no power to release me, unless it's given to you by the Father. He saw the Father's will in at weak Pilate. And the authority was given to him by Caesar, and, and Jesus says, no, it was given to you by my Father. He had to straighten him out. Well, how many of us now, how many of us uh, in our daily life, we, we have a hard time thinking this came from God or this was permitted by God, huh? You're, you're shaking your head. Isn't that true? You know, something happened in your life that you, you just, I got a call the other night from a, young, from a man who was just so hurt, his heart is so hurt, because his little eight-and-a-half-year-old daughter died. I think she was killed. And, and, and what you think right off the bat, or is, and, and many tragedies happen in your life. You're gone along real good, and the first thing you know, you lose your job. You just bought a new house, and they, they fired you. You're looking forward with a, to a pension, and they fire you before your pension's up. So now you don't even get a pension. You get a big fat zilcher. And, and we say, I can't see God in that. God is loving. God is compassionate. But see, Jesus found God. He found the Father in that unjust condemnation. And you say, well, that's not fair. Who, what is fair for us, huh? When we have done such a thing to the Lord, but what is fair? Sometimes we're victims. But we have to have that same conviction that the Father permits it in our life. Because He permits it, I must say yes to God. And I must find God in that very tragedy. Is that hard? Why do you think it's hard? I don't know. Maybe I expect everything to be well. You expect everything to be well. Yeah, because we God's supposed yeah, to be there. We, we, we expect heaven here. Right. Huh? We expect heaven all the way to heaven, don't right. we? But Jesus did. <laughs> <laughs> See, the way to look at it. No, no, heaven all the way to heaven. And, 
And you know, it's not practical. It's, it's how your body doesn't even think that way. It, it begins to deteriorate. Is that your husband? Does he look now like he did when you married him? <laughs> no, not really. But see, he changed. It, it, there's always a change going on in us, and 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 so we 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 have a tendency then to to want to hang on to what's right right now, what's giving us joy, and. It's not going to hang on. It's on its way out. On its way out. And, and you see, Jesus now gives us many lessons in that first station in our daily life. He taught us that many times the very best thing we do is not appreciated. The very nicest thing we do to somebody, they, they turn it around against us. And you look at them and you say, I don't believe this is happening. In the Psalms, it says something about you and your best friend. They used to go into the, to the temple of the Lord together and share things together. Now it becomes your enemy. And Jesus did all of that in that first station. See, what he would say, it's a father. Don't worry about it. You know, I'm standing here unjustly accused. Well, he's unjustly accused so we have the second station. We don't understand really what it means to carry a cross. We all have our crosses and sometimes we make them ourselves. That's why they don't fit. See, the kind of cross you make yourself never fits. And that's why we can't bear it very well. And we all have to admit we kind of make our own crosses sometimes. But this cross was made specifically for Jesus. Now you, you're talking about a man who has already lost a lot of blood, who is crowned with thorns. Uh, he, he, he takes that cross and he can hardly, hardly hold it. He's just so exhausted. And don't we get that way sometimes? Huh? Don't you get tired of carrying your cross? Don't you get tired of that pain every day, of that, that thorn in the flesh every day? Don't we get tired of that? Don't we wish somebody else had it or, or this thing would end? Do you ever feel that way? But see, Jesus began his passion with the cross when he was at his worst, physically at his worst. And, and, and we too, We too carry our cross difficult, in difficult. We feel scrupulous about that. Do you feel scrupulous sometimes when you're when you're beefing about your cross? You feel guilty? Yeah. You really want to bear it better, huh? And all of a sudden you're griping about it. See? And and Jesus said he felt that way. Here is this this big cross, this big beam that he put on his shoulders, are already red with blood and already torn up and and he has to take this this cross he has to bear it he can't he can't give it to anybody he's he's got it and he's got to carry it but he's so weak he falls that's the third station he falls he can't 
He can't carry that cross. Now you're talking about the Almighty God in whose hands the planets, the world, everything rests. See, it's like, it's like he took his divinity and just put it aside. St. Saint, Saint Paul says he emptied himself, totally emptied himself. And he became like you, just with, a, with an endurance that was, was almost limited. And yet his was unlimited. Nobody could face the cross, could suffer the scourging and the crowning with thorns and then take a cross on his shoulder not without dropping dead right there. So he kept himself up for you, just for you. And you see, when we fall under our crosses, we have to get courage by looking at him. You say, yeah, he fell too. It got too much for him. He put aside his power. He put aside his omnipotence. If I had the power, I wouldn't have put it aside. See, but he, he allowed himself to be totally human and limited, and he fell. He fell. Now, was his fall ordained by God? Well, you could say it was, but certainly permitted by God because our human, since he took on his human body and laid aside his divinity so he could suffer all that, the body can just take so much. You can lose so much blood, you get, go into a coma. You, you can take so much of a beating and you pass out. You, and, and that's what he, he wanted to suffer like you do. And, and ours is usually from our human nature. Yeah, do you want to ask a question? Yeah, well, let's say, you know, it, it, it's uh, rather painful when you think about all this, but you think about a friend, too, that's been hurt yeah. real bad. And uh, how does this help me when I think about Jesus as opposing to thinking about a friend what, uh, that's been hurt and so forth? How do I, does it, what's the difference when you, you're talking about something happened 2,000 years ago? How does it... It? But it's not 2,000 years, it's today. When I carry my cross and I fall, fall beneath the weight of it, Jesus is carrying it with me. When I see a neighbor that is so in such pain, dying of cancer, or who lost loved ones, all the tragedies of our human nature and our, 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 our country especially today, people going bankrupt, all these kind of tragedies in our lifetime. Jesus is suffering all of that. What I do to them, I do to him. When I'm helping my friend, I am doing now what I wish I had been able to do at that time. It's not a past, something in the past. It's something very present. I've often wished, haven't you often wished you were there? Yeah, that's quite a frightening way. It's frightening, but don't you wish that maybe like Veronica, you could have, we could, we're going ahead of ourselves now, but we could have kind of broken through the crowds and wiped his face. Don't you wish you could have just tripped one of those soldiers or done something to them, you know? <laughs> that, that they have the audacity or run around looking for the apostles and saying, where are you? Why aren't you with the master? You know, you, you just wish you could do these things. Well, 
the Lord affords you that opportunity now. When you do something like that for your neighbor, when you raise up a man that's fallen beneath his cross, when you raise him up, you're doing now what you couldn't do then. That's why the stations of the cross are something very much alive. It's very much alive. And, 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 and Jesus, Jesus was, was moved by this by the terrible treatment he got. Those soldiers just didn't let him fall. They would crack him with a whip or, or try to get him back up again. We have to continue. This is where faith, hope, and love come in. See, I have to see Jesus, and then I have, my faith has to be enlivened. My faith has to grow. And I know that even though I've fallen now, I can rise again. I can be forgiven. I can, and maybe I don't take the crosses like you said. We want to be heroic. You know, sometimes we read the lives of the martyrs, and we say, wow, I'd like to be a martyr. We can't even take a splinter. You know, we get a splinter in our finger and we're crying our eyes out because it hurts so bad. But see, that's where Jesus gives us courage. Now, the next station is, I think, so sad. Jesus rises. He, they put the cross back on his shoulders and he meets his mother. Sometimes I wonder how, how they must have looked at each other. Can you imagine, for example, um, someone you love in that condition? And say you were the one in that condition. Wouldn't you be embarrassed that the one you love so much could see you like that? Huh? People that have cancer and they take uh, chemotherapy or radiation, they lose all their hair. Isn't that a, a, a terrible kind of cross and embarrassment when the ones that you love so much have to see you bald-headed? Different operations that are, are so tragic. I saw a man not too long ago that lost all of his jaw and part of his face. And I thought to myself, what's in his heart? When, when his mother looks at him, or his, his wife, or his children. You know, you, you have to take those kind of things and know that when Jesus met Mary on the way to the cross, they had great sympathy for each other. But that heartache of Mary seeing someone she loved, loved so much, in such a terrible condition, and she's helpless. Yeah, you've all had experience, haven't you, with children who are, there's nothing worse than children with terrible diseases. And you see them in bed, and they're lying there, and they're in pain, and you, you're helpless. The doctors can't do anything, you can't do anything. It's a terrible thing. Well, that's nothing compared to what Mary and Jesus went through when they looked at each other. But they did it for you, you see? And it's every cross you have, every pain you have, is like meeting Jesus on the way of the cross. And he looks at you with such compassion. 
See, he suffers with you. Jesus lives in me, huh? I just had a toe operation, and, 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 and those things are painful. You know, those little wires sticking out of your feet, you know, and you're, you're looking at those things, and you wonder, why did I get this thing done, you know? It's better to have hammer toes or something, you know? And, and, and you think of Jesus there, barely able to walk up the hill, and you think, Ma, I don't have any courage at all. So, finally, the soldiers are afraid he's going to die before he gets up the hill. Because he's getting weaker. So they pull somebody out of the crowd called Simon the Cyrenian. They force him. He didn't want to do it. That was a disgrace. And they forced him to do it. He had two sons with him. And I would imagine, though, when Simon took Jesus' cross on his shoulders, there must have been some kind of inner joy, some kind of inner feeling of, of deep awareness that I'm carrying is his cross. Well, that's an easy one, isn't it? Huh? How often today do we have the compassion to help somebody carry their cross. Are we forced into it sometimes? Do you know they say that the, one of the things wrong in the world today is a lack of compassion. We have a lot of misdirected compassion, but very little real compassion. We don't want to even listen to the same person telling us for the 25th time about the same operation. We're not too good with organ recitals, you know? Gallbladder, liver, kidneys. Uh, we, we just are not too good with these kind of recitals. We, we just don't like it. And, and are, are we forced sometime to do acts of love and acts of charity? But you see, Jesus wanted us to know he needed help. But somebody had to be forced to help him. The man who cured the blind, who healed the deaf and the dumb, who made people walk that never walked since birth, who raised the dead. Not one of those people was around during his crucifixion. There wasn't one in the crowd, and I'll bet you there were a lot in that crowd. They were so filled with human respect. And how, how many times do you suffer out of human respect? But see, Jesus wanted us to have joy. Even though Simon was forced to help Jesus carry that cross, Jesus, I'll make a bet, gave him an inner joy don't you get a joy when somebody dies and you go over and you make a, a great big plate of spaghetti or Irish stew and you bring it over to them so that they don't have to cook? Aren't you being another Simon of Cyrene? If you go and visit somebody who is, is alone or you bring him to Mass on Sunday or you care and say, you know, do you, do you need something? Can I bring you some hot soup? 
Aren't you being a Simon and Cyrene? Aren't you doing for Jesus what Simon did for Jesus? The next station is Veronica. Veronica is that woman in the scriptures who came out of nowhere and went into the crowds, disappeared. She took her veil off. And she ran to Jesus. And you have to remember that the soldiers, one of the things they used to do that was so gross, they would spit at the, at the men that were being crucified. I don't think there's anything, anything that turns my stomach is if I see a man rolling down his window and spit out of his window. All I can do is pray the wind comes a different direction <laughs> and brings it right back in his car. You know, I've had that prayer. It's never happened yet. But every time I see that terrible thing, I just pray, Lord, let the wind, reverse the wind, Lord. Just revert, just once, Lord. <laughs> reverse the wind. And, and nothing ever happens. There's nothing worse than that. And yet, these people spit in the face of Jesus over and over again. The Lord of all, the God of heaven, the majestic one, the holy one. And this woman, I hate to say this, but it's almost forced to say it. All the men ran. The women stayed. That weak sex women. They were at the cross. They were at the, all the way up to Passion. They were there after the cross, after the, the death of Jesus. They were Easter morning. Out of strong women. And this woman was strong. She broke through the crowds, pushed through the soldiers, and wiped his face. Every night before you go to bed, you need to ask yourself a question. Did I wipe someone's face today with my love, with my compassion, with my power to listen? Did I wipe someone's face? Or did I smear it with slander, calumny, Gossip. You see, when you do those things, you spend hours on the phone gossiping about this one and gossiping about that one and tearing this one apart and tearing that one apart. You're doing that to Jesus. It's not, the stations are not something in the past. There's something each one of you go through at some time in your life sometime in your life. And Jesus was so, by that time, so exhausted, he falls again. That's a seventh station. Jesus falls a second time. And what he's saying to us there 
is that it's not easy to strive for holiness. Did you ever have sometimes um, uh, a desire to be holy and everything seems to be falling in place? You're praying good, you go into church, and you just want to stay there for hours. Did you ever have that feeling, huh? And, and you're just on your way now to holiness. And something happens to try your faith or to try your hope, and down you go. You're nodding your head. You thought you had it made, didn't you? I used to think that when I was a young sister. I was always getting another secret I would work on to be holy, something that made it easy. You know, I liked everything instant. And I thought all you have to do is do God's will. And that's a simple thing. And all you have to do is God's will and bingo, you, you're holy. That's what it says here. Well, you see, that's fine for about three days. Huh? Did you make it three days? I used to make it about three days. Three days and my resolution was shot. Something would happen that I could not understand and I, can, I would say to my dad, cannot be God's will. I forgot my station, see. It can't be God's will. I blow it. I go back to zero again. Go back to zero. But the Lord got up again. So he got up again, and that's what he's saying to us. Don't worry. You failed. You're sorry. You, you've gone to confession. You're, you've determined not to do that again. Rise. You're, you're, you're tired fighting. Did you ever get tired fighting? You ever just tired of life? You get up in the morning, you work all day, you come home and eat. You go somewhere maybe, you go to bed, you get up in the morning, you work all day. You go on the vacation and you're more tired when you come back than when you went. And broke. <laughs> You're broke besides. But the Lord said, it's okay. You know, keep, keep going. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about it. Don't think of the past. You have, you have this present moment. Get up. Okay? Mother, I, I wanted to ask you, it may not be a question you can answer, but when I, growing up, I went all through Catholic grammar school, high school, and so on. The significance of the stations was never explained as it meant to our lives. Is there some reason for that? I think that uh, by mistake, I think the, 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 the stations were relegated to Lent. And uh, every Friday, I don't know what you did in your, did you every Friday? You had stations of the cross at night? And, and, of course, the, the stations during Lent was concentrated entirely upon the passion, the suffering of Jesus, which it should be during Lent. But I think where we missed it, it was a beautiful thing that God gave us. And St. Francis, I hate to brag about it, but uh, <laughs> it was St. Francis who gave us the stations. And the stations were geared towards making you understand your own stations in life, your own crosses. 
And we all suffer denial. We all suffer aloneness when, when we're in pain. There's nobody there to help. We, we all suffer betrayals. We, we all do that. And if we don't use these wonderful stations of the cross that are in every Catholic church, if we don't use those to, to look and say, well, Lord, it's happening to you now through me. See, the Lord said, what I do to you, I do to him. And so whether it's a just or an unjust cross, I'm doing it to Jesus. Jesus is constantly going through his stations through in your stations. And, and if you don't look at these, if you look at the stations of the cross, as Bill was saying, as something in the past, you're, you're going to, it, it's, it's wonderful to have sympathy for Jesus. And I recommend that. Because that's the whole purpose of that, is to, to make him know how much he loved you. But if that's all we do, then it's something in the past, and Jesus is in the present moment. When we have Mass every morning, it's not the past sacrifice, it's the sacrifice we see now. In the eyes of God, all things are present. It isn't a, t a sacrifice 2,000 years ago. It's a sacrifice on that altar right now. The very same one, not over and over and over, but the very same one. And, and I'm there. And I think it's unfortunate sometimes that we were not taught that those stations of the cross are there to elicit sympathy and, and, and compassion for Jesus. But I got to see myself there. I got to see me. And I have to see how he bore his cross under the exact same circumstances. When we, when we stray away from God, we have nothing to hang on to except our own human nature, which is not prone to holiness on a natural level. It gives in to itself. Without God, you become an animal. Now, I know a lot of people aren't going to like that, but it's true. You cannot, you cannot listen to a news item. <clears throat> you can't listen to a, a man who, who kills 60 people, chops them up, and puts them in his refrigerator. You cannot tell me that that's not like an animal. Worse, because animals don't do that. So these kind of things are tragedies, and when they happen to someone you know and happen to someone you love, you got to run to the cross where Jesus was so torn. You can't, now no one was ever scourged by a Roman that even, that even survived. His skin was torn off of him. No one can see Jesus crowned with the thorns, and these thorns, I saw the thorns. They were that, that long. And, and no one can be crowned with it. That, now, that's, that's abuse that is this torture. And I, I have to relate. Whatever tragedy hits me, I must relate it back to the stations in order to make any sense out of it. And know that when that soul died under tragic circumstances in a state of grace, they got a tremendous reward in the kingdom. Tremendous reward. We had another, another, uh, yeah. 
two questions. Which station can we associate with patients? And the second question is, why is the <coughs> Friday night Lenten service down to a handful? Why is it sort of going? The first question is, what's all of the stations relate to patients? I, I would think the one that relates to patients most of all was when our dear Lord was nailed to the cross. And, and there's no indication he gave out even one little scream. Uh, that was the most a terrible pain in the world. The <coughs> patience of, of being on hanging on a cross for all those hours and, and uh, all, praying for his enemies. His unbelievable patience, compassion. If our Friday night services are blah, if you have them at all, if you have them, rejoice. <laughs> but if they're blah, there's something wrong. The spirit is not able to come out. We don't cry for anybody anymore. We don't have the compassion to cry for someone else's pain. We've lost compassion. We don't feel what our neighbor feels anymore. And we don't feel what Jesus felt. We're hard of heart. And we have to ask our Lord, take away this stony heart and give me a soft heart of flesh. We can see the most, we, we're curious about an accident. We're not compassionate. See? We're curious, but not compassionate. We don't cry over Jesus, and if we don't cry over him, we're not going to cry over each other. See? We don't easily cry. We're ashamed to cry. We're ashamed to show that I feel down to my guts what somebody else is feeling. We don't have that empathy. You see? We're cold-hearted. For that reason, we don't have that compassion. We have a call from our audience, and I don't want to miss them. Hello? Hello? Good evening, Mother. Good evening. Um, I was assigned to write the Stations of the Cross at one time, and I, w I want to ask you a question. Now, in writing the Stations, I found many books, especially the Pieta, that was very helpful. And we know that no man's cross is for himself alone, right. and we are now aware that we all have to uh, live out his passion, death, and resurrection. But when I came to the fourth station, there was nothing in the books about it and I was trying to have the books help me so I want to ask you if this fourth station is correct when Jesus looked at Mary and they looked at each other and there wasn't a word said no but what was said to me is they were two hearts beating as one and doing the will of the father and then I became aware of the precious blood of Mary because it was her blood also being shed upon the cross. 
Now, I don't know how correct this was, and when I came to some of the stations, you can't find everything in books. So it's like you're giving your heart on the cross and learning to pray from the heart. I came to the seventh station, and I couldn't find very much. So Jesus said, just open your heart and let me put you the pace that I right. put on Veronica's veil. Right. So well, this, is, this has been a tremendous experience, and it's very healing. But when I came to the cross on the, uh, where he was raised up, he says, I will raise you up. Well, let me, let me explain that for a station as we did just a, a minute ago. The words pain is when you see someone you love suffer intensely and there's nothing you can do about it. The worst thing about that was the humiliation of Jesus seeing his mother see him in that condition. See, we, we, we don't get into anything. We don't get into the pain of Jesus. I think that was one of the worst pains Jesus and Mary had. When Simeon said to Jesus, to Mary, when she brought Jesus at the temple, at the presentation, he said, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and a sword shall pierce your heart. I think there were seven swords that pierced Mary's heart. I think that when she glanced at Jesus, and Jesus glanced at her, either one able to help, there was no way he could comfort her and no way she could comfort him except through her love and his love for her. I think that's when a sword pierced her heart. You can't look at someone you love and know that they're suffering intensely and you can do nothing about it and not have your heart break. You can't. It's impossible. If you haven't gotten that far, you're bad off. You can't look at these babies in Africa that are starving and then just turn a page. I mean, there has to be when we've lost that. When you lose God and when we lose when we lose compassion for Jesus, you lose compassion for each other. Everything is just a news item. Nobody cries anymore over the right thing. We don't want to get involved, you see. Well, I hate to say it, we only got two minutes left. And we've only done seven stations. But I hope, I hope that you see yourself in that. Do you see yourself a little better in the stations than you would before, huh? Can you relate the stations to yourself now? Can you see yourself condemned sometimes? And then look at Jesus and say, how did he hide in, in total silence? And, and take upon your cross, yourself, a cross that you feel is too heavy for you right now. You just don't have the strength for it. And then fall beneath it. Have you never looked at someone you loved and just felt so frustrated because there was nothing you could do? Have you ever has suddenly had someone out of nowhere come and help you when you thought everything was lost? Huh? Did you ever have someone have the courage to stand by you as Veronica did? 
in a terrible situation when everybody's against you, everybody, when there's no one you can point to that said, here is a friend. Did you ever have that experience? Huh? Then have somebody come out of nowhere and say, I am your friend. Yes, he had his stations, and so do you. I would encourage you to go to your local church and make the stations. If you don't, go to your bookstore and get a book on them. Bye now. I love you. you've enjoyed this program all rights reserved unauthorized copying public performance and broadcasting of this recording is prohibited as provided by applicable law if you're interested in ordering additional copies please call the EWTN religious catalog toll-free at 1-800-854-6316 or go to EWTNreligiouscatalog.com listened to you for about six months now and you've really got my mind turning on my faith and my doctrine and my beliefs came to know christ through a pentecostal church and just listening to the beliefs of the catholic faith and had me really reflect on what i believed and what the truth was so i'm kind of leaning making a difference ewtn radio check out what's online now at ewtn.com Click on the EWTN Prime link on our homepage for EWTN's new primetime lineup. Updates on shows like EWTN Live and classic episodes of Mother Angelica Live are online now at EWTN.com. Hello, this is Brian Kemper of Priest for Life with Pro-Life Update. Holy Thursday, a day sacred to all Christians, is the day which Jesus gave us the Eucharist, the priesthood, and the commandment of charity. All are symbolized by his washing the feet of his disciples. He told us on this sacred night that we are to wash each other's feet. We are to do what is unpleasant in order to serve one another. We are to get ourselves dirty in order to love one another. Tonight we all join in the Mass of the Lord's Supper. Let us recommit ourselves to loving and serving the least among us, the smallest and most vulnerable, namely the unborn children. Let us wash their feet by speaking up for them and working to restore the protection of their lives. This is Brian Kemper on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Is prayer powerful? St. Alphonsus Liguri put it this way, He who prays will be saved. He who does not pray, well, you get the point. Prayer can bring us salvation. It's the means of putting us into communion with God, and God can do all things. The more our will lines up with the will of God, the more powerful our prayers, and the simpler they become ultimately 
be it done to me, Lord, according to thy word. That's the prayer God will always answer. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for those in need of employment. Our provident Father in heaven, holy is your name. Many today are without employment and are struggling to provide for themselves and for their families. Give us this day our daily bread. Reveal your providential care and assist them in finding meaningful work. Bring them closer to you in this time of trial and show them the way. Let the door be open to them, for we are knocking. Let them receive your help, for we are asking. Amen. Stay up to date on the latest EWTN TV and radio shows, books, art, CDs, and DVDs when you sign up for Wings, our weekly e-newsletter. Get Wings today. Go to EWTN.com and click subscribe. Catholic Connection is a 